Hey, so before the podcast starts, I just want to say, because John Heileman and I get off on a really great series of tangents that I think are real uh, moment stuff, but they're not real uh, clear about what John is doing right now. And so I just want to say, you know, both the circus of which he's executive producer and the recount of which he's founder and executive producer are amazing uh, content sources. The circus season five premiered Sunday night and is on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time on Showtime. And The Recount is a new platform for short-form video news analysis and commentary on podcasts at www.therecount.com. And uh, I find it in this age, it's great that The Recount just gives you these short bursts of knowledge that you can carry with you about what is actually happening in the world. Heilman and I go deep on a lot of emotional stuff. So hang on, hang in, hang out. I promise never to say those three things again in that order, because uh, I'm a little embarrassed. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I am here with a dear friend, an actual real-life dear friend. Uh, this is his second appearance on the show. The world has shifted. Uh, John Heileman, you know him from... Uh, Morning Joe, you know him from The Circus, which is his show. Uh, You know him from Recount, which is a platform that he's uh, launched quite successfully. You might know him from his books. You might know him from uh, the magazine articles, the columns. Uh, You might just know him because you've been in any nice restaurant in New York and heard a guy (laughs) telling very loud stories in the back table and tried... Making an ass of himself. You've tried to shush him, but then it turns out he's 6'3", and then you just slink back to your table. 6'5". As we saw a very famous writer I won't name once try to do. Yeah. Failed. He failed. Well, he got up from his table. Yeah. And he was going to come over to Shush, and then he saw, I think, what he was dealing with, yes. and he just went right back yes, to the table. Yes, correct. It was good. I felt good about that. That was a victory about which I had to exert no, <laughs> no, I had to exert like, no physical uh, or verbal threats to make someone recede from my space. It was good. <laughs> and yeah, so six five, right? Um, not six three. Don't fuck with. Don't take my inches away. Um, and it's great to see you. Uh, it's great to see you, my friend. I want to say two things about time and the you know, us, that the, la- the first time I was on the show, the show was like really nothing. I mean, it had just started. I guess it had just first started. First of all, okay, so I'll just say very quickly, because we have a lot of things to discuss, but first of all, I remember sitting with you at a, at a, at a Brooklyn Nets game years ago. Yes, sir. Talking about the idea for this podcast and what it was going to be. And the podcast, you were it was a, you had a much narrower conception because the moment as a as a title was about you were like I want to do it about the moment where you face the incredibly important decision and either you make the right choice or the wrong choice, but it's a pivotal moment, a choice you've made in your life yeah. that turns out to be well, it was about how you process the highest or lowest moments. Yes, or, or a key moment where yeah. something either you made the right yeah. choice or the wrong choice, but it was all about a, a very discreet thing. And we're going to talk about this moment in the arc of someone's career. The thing has obviously become a much broader discussion. I listen to the moment. I'm a huge fan of you, Thank as you, you know, and we're also super friends, so I'm, I don't know why I'm stroking you here, but I love the, the, the podcast though has evolved into a broader conversation. You have people come in and talk about a lot of different things, but then it was very, it was very high concept at yes. that time. Well, it was good. You know, it was useful to start as I'm sure, you know, in the way, when you begin an endeavor like this, the more narrowly drawn the concept, sort of the easier it is to get your arms around right. it as the person doing it. Right. Then I, we were able to, to, and I'm, I'm going to turn this right on to you in about a second. Uh, 
I still get to those moments, but I do find that the broad, the, the bigger context is helpful for people. Yeah. But you have some moments I want to talk about. Well, that's now. fine. I'm happy to do that. But I'll tell you that what's interesting is that I actually, in a weird way, and I don't, I'm not trying to give myself, it's not this about giving myself credit, but I do remember that we had this conversation about what the podcast was going to yeah. be like. You started it very much in line with what, with that notion. Then I did the podcast with you, and I the reason I remember that a very precise. I have a good memory, as you may know, um, and I remember very clearly you were doing the podcast over. Not you do it, I know, in different locations, but we did it at in a, a studio in like the Brill Building or yes, something. That's correct, and it was actually, and we went from that to see Chappelle. It was when Chappelle was just coming, making the comeback. Oh, dude, that was a crazy because I had radio done City. earlier that day. Yes. And then you, and then we went to Chappelle. And we sat down in our seats, and Edward was in front of us. Norton was in the row right in front of us. So we saw Chappelle in that first Radio City run. So that would have been like 2014. So that was maybe a couple years after you first like told me you were going to do this podcast. We then did that podcast, and I remember thinking when we did it, that we didn't really talk about, we talked about a lot of moments, but it wasn't, it had already started to become a broader discussion where you yeah. were talking to people about not, it was not quite so high concept. It was more like having a broader, more rolling discussion about various themes that hold the whole thing together, but not quite so focused on one specific moment in one specific person's life or career. So that, but I always think of that in the context of Chappelle. And then I'll say this, and then we can talk about whatever you want. I'm coming over here. We, I will tell you, podcast listeners, we happen to be in Brooklyn right now, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, not far from where I used to live. Uh, and one of the places where Billions... Yeah, we shoot here. ...shoots. Yeah. And um, as I'm coming over, in my Facebook app, I get one of those anniversary things that pops up. You know, you get those anniversary things on Facebook. Yeah. A year ago today, I came to visit you on set when you guys were shooting the charity boxing match. Oh, I remember. We sat on, down in the basement on, there. On the Bowery. Um, yeah. That was one year ago today. I was on set because I took a bunch of pictures with the guys in the cast. And, and for anybody who, who likes this kind of thing, one of the most awesome things about, about what's happened in our respective lives, and I think our joint lives, is the fact that when we met, neither one of us had any association with Showtime. And, and, oh, over, yeah. and over the arc of our friendship, Billions started... You became a Showtime person. I actually, the circus started before Billions. In fact, I the circus started. You know, but basically, no, you called me. I remember you. I, we were going on Billions, making the first season when you called me and you said, "Season one was what year?" I know because I remember where I was. I was driving under the Brooklyn Bridge, and and you called and you said, "I need to have a conversation with you, confidential. We're considering making this deal with Showtime." Right. And then I was like, I was able to tell you they've been, I remember saying to you, they're they, honest. They've been great with you. I yes. said they're honest Yes, people. you did. So yes. I remember the, that timeline. So it's incredible because they basically, so the shows basically started at the same time. And so it's like we became members of the Showtime family together, like roughly contemporaneously. And the shows have kind of, we're starting our fifth season. You guys uh, are starting shooting your our fifth, fifth season. season. So we're like, we've had this weird parallelism yes. that was totally happenstance. It has nothing to do with our friendship, which predated that. And... And the other thing, again, for people who care about this kind of stuff, is that there's this great uh, like ad mutual admiration society among people on the circus and people on Billions. Completely. There's a huge number of the cast members on Billions who I'm either friends or friendly with. They are huge. They watch the, sh they watch well, the circus. Well, and the Dan Soder and Mark McKinnon connection. And Dan Soder and Mark McKinnon are family. So it's, it's kind of rad. I like it's, you know, I don't, I generally think of work as you're doing your work. You're making your work. And then there's the person who pays for it. You know, like I don't, I'm like a, I'm like a, a mercenary I'm, in that I, well, way. I'm a communist. I think like I get ownership and I get capital and labor. I get like, we, we find relationships that work for us 
it's not always exploitative, but the bottom line is like we make our work and we hopefully have a constructive relationship with our employer or the platform we work yeah. for. In this case, like we both, the way we really love David Nevins and, and, and we, in a weird way, there's a family feeling between the shows that I think is like unusual because it's super awesome thing. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, we all, you know, you it's and not, your I mean, wife it's really and Amy and I always nice. had this family feeling. Yes. But right. It's wonderful that it's also in this thing. Also, you know, you just gave a terrible pull quote to your enemies where John Heileman said, I'm a communist. Yeah, I know. That, but, you did just say that. So I, I just want to say it was in a context. I want to be clear. I don't want politicians I, I, I to be, be able to use that against you. I want to be clear. I am a, ca- I, anybody who knows me knows yeah. I am a capitalist. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise you're going to think you're in the bag for Bernie. So I just want to. To a fault. I'm a capitalist and and I believe in capitalism and I am a capitalist and I benefited from capitalism but in what in terms of being trying to be clear-eyed about the nature of how work works which is like I think it's a mistake in general for for people to be like I love my, my I you're like my, my work family my, you're my work family or like thinking yeah, that but in creative it gets really in jobs like ours yes. not your job as a uh, a reporter and writer but in your job making a show and in my job working with all these artists that I work yeah. with there is something that's different from many sort of office totally. jobs totally. because of the nature of the work in which you're engaged. 100%. All I mean is I think that like it's good to have a clear-eyed notion as, as anybody who's yes. been on a show that's been canceled. Oh yeah, I've been, fi- I mean, I've been you, fired a million right, times in right, Hollywood. Yeah. Right. And, that, and, you, and you have to be able to accept the notion that sometimes you're going to get canceled or get fired or whatever and it's not like personal. It's just like they are... You're, you know, your, your friends num- could have to do you, it. Your, your numbers go down and yeah. somebody looks and says, you know, I'm sorry, we have to fire you. And, it's, and if you start to think that Somehow, again, in television, like we luckily, we our numbers matter. At, we care about how many people watch Billions, how many people watch The Circus. But we're not ratings dependent in the way like cable hosts are, for instance. Correct. But if you live in the world of cable news or in the world of broadcast news or, or in on, on, on network television, the reason why everybody's so ratings obsessed is that you know a couple points one way or the other is the difference between well, getting, renewed, get getting renewed for years and getting canceled and being right. out of work. I, and, and having clarity about the notion that it's a business, not a family – in, in terms of, again, I, I, well, my show time But I'm sure that's really, I'm, hold on, I want to say, I want to turn it a certain way, which yeah. is ke- keeping those lines straight for you, though, in yeah. your A job, in your job as somebody who has to commentate yeah. and comment on the actions of people with whom you have relationships very similar to friendships. Oh, yeah. Must be hard at times to keep the lines straight. Because I know some of these people... You've known for a very long time. You know their lives. Some of them you've let in on your life a little bit. Yeah. How do you deal with that now? Even differently than a few years ago, how do you deal with it now? I think that, like, if you can't, you know, there's that famous line, I, I would say it's a sin that I can't remember who said it, but the, fam- this congressman, Joan, I, I, the congressman who said, you know, if I can't, when he, talks, when he talked about lobbyists, who said, if I can't take their money, drink their booze, and screw their women, and then vote against them the next day, I'm not doing my job, Right. In, in our, in, in the world of, I've always thought that like, if the most productive, the, the best personal relationships I've had with people in politics, whether they're elected officials or strategists or whatever, have been ones where it's been very clear that the premise of the thing is I'm going to be brutally honest about them all the time. And if they can't deal with the fact that if they do something dumb, I'm going to say they did something dumb. Or if they're going to have to take the fact that I'm going to go on television and say, Someone who I have a perfectly positive relationship with, if they can't take it, they shouldn't be in this business. And are you? They should able- understand that they should understand that's the job of the press. And that if I, if I, and if someone on, if they, someone on their campaign gives me a piece of information I'm not supposed to have, 
and I publish that information. This thing is like, if you're mad at me for publishing the information, you're mad at the wrong person. And can you My, always prosecute this stuff with that amount of rigor? Can you make yourself separated from somebody you have incredible warmth for? Yeah, I mean, well, you, not it's I, no one. Anybody who says that's not difficult is yeah. lying to you. It's hard. It's it can be hard to publish something. Either to say something critical about someone who you like, or to publish some piece of a piece of news, a piece you've learned something, you get a piece of a piece of information that would be damaging to a campaign or a, an office holder. Yeah. But it's in the public interest and it matters and it's an important piece of information. Is it difficult to do that? It is difficult to do that sometimes. And you think to yourself, man, this is going to be a kick in the balls to that person. Yes. And, and yet you're like, what's and it's going to redound to you emotionally too in some way. Yes. And what? But the question is, what's my job you know who do you who what's your what's your fundamental who are you serving what's your fundamental obligation as a journalist and your fundamental obligation as a journalist is to your audience is to your and in, in a funny way it is like in the creative process right you you are you are ultimately you serve your audience you don't serve your muse you don't serve you, you don't serve the show the script Soderbergh talk. you know you just serve making the thing the best it can be in its purest form yes and for you that means this kind of but it means you can't betray Rigor when you're honesty. when you're when you're thinking about what's going to happen in a character arc or what's going to happen yeah. in a in a plot line yeah. or whatever. If you do something that is going to betray the audience's conception of who that person is, or going to betray the audience's trust in whatever the thing, yes. like you have to be mindful of that. And I think for if you're a journalist, you have to always be remembering the fact that your job is to hold powerful interests to account on behalf of the public. That's what we're here for. Sometimes it, it takes a very exalted form and you can look at it and really see it clearly. But even, I think, you know, even in, it, it, in, in places where it's not so obvious, where it's not, hey, it's Watergate and here's Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, obviously that's what they're doing. Every day that we go on television, every day that we write a, a, a magazine story or a newspaper story or a, a digital thing or whatever it is, every day when we're writing about these people, Sometimes in ways that are very small and hard to see, and sometimes in ways that are very large and glaring. That's what we're. That's what we've been entrusted with. We get to ask these people questions. We get still, hopefully, still the blessings of the First Amendment to be able to go and do this thing. It's an incredible privilege and it's an incredible honor. And at the moment when you're thinking to yourself, should I really like you know? Should I really do? I really want to publish this thing. It's going to be bad for that person who's friend. I'm friendly with. I right. like that person. You know, like. And then you think to yourself. I, yeah, my, I remember my, I was with you once. My job, my job is to be a, honest here. I was here. with you once, and a governor called you, and I, I remember you saying to me, oh, "I really like this guy." I'll remind you later who it was, but yeah. he. And I remember you, you had this conversation with him, and then you were able to hang up and turn to the people you were with, and, ha and then, and, and it was clear you really liked him. You weren't playing him. You weren't fucking around. Yeah. On the other hand, we hung up, and you were like, "All right, let me tell you about this guy and what's going to happen." Right. And you were able to just very dispassionately kind of like yeah. break it down. Yeah. And I thought, like, well, that's. A fascinating sort of the, what someone in your position has to do, and I, I thought about it in terms of Maggie, who I, you know, I love Maggie, even though she gets yeah. so much shit from yeah. people. Yeah. Um, that was a good podcast you had up with her when she was on. Think she's good. great, and I speak to her a lot, but 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 I haven't seen her do her job, and I've seen you do your job yeah. a few different times, yeah. and uh, having to be real in both of those moments. So real in the moment you're talking to the governor, right. And then real in the moment when you're trying to, you know, you hung up and then you were trying to, you were talking to me, but what you were doing was like making sense of it for yourself to yes, talk about. Right. They're totally, di they're like, it's a shift almost, switch that goes off, right? In some way. Yes. And, and yet, and yet I like to think it's totally true that, you know, you're, you're, you are, you are having a 
professional interaction. And I guarantee you that being the psychotherapist that you are with all of your cast members on Billions, like yes. you are, you have a different relationship with every single one That's of them. That's correct. But there's a similarity to the way you deal with all of them. And in a way, you are a father confessor, you are a, a, a priest, you are a, a rabbi, you are a, 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 psych, a psychotherapist. You be all those things. All those things. Right. For, you gotta be all of it. You're yeah. all of those things. You, as a habit of mind, yes. have to be able to, and again, to be clear to anybody who's listening, you would not, you know, dis, like confide secrets about your cast to me. But you and David is a good example. You and David would have, have to have these have conversations, to, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. So you can have a conversation with one of your cast members, and then you can have an analytical conversation about with David about about how about what how what's going on with him and what you need to do to get him through that thing or her through that thing, yes. right? Where they flip the switch, but in both cases. Even though you would you would say things to Dave that you would never say, but you're being honest with both of them. Yes. Yeah, the difference, though, is you, I will not have to act adversely. Right. It, because we're we're on the same team. You're not on the same team as these Correct. people, even if you like them. Correct. So so I'm saying in business, I could act adversely to some executives. Yes. But but you're you, the thing was interesting. The guy the phone rang and you said to me, "Oh, I really like this guy." Yeah. Then you had the really, and it was clear you did. Yeah. Then you hung up, and then you had to go into this mode. And I thought, well, that must be hard. Yeah. Um, you know. You know. Yes, it's it's a little weird. And and look, that's true. Did they true. ever call you pissed afterwards? Oh yeah. So then you were. Oh so my then God. You, All the time. So then you've had that combo with that guy. Then you have All to go time. on your television show and do whatever. Yeah. Does that guy ever call you up and go, dude? I thought we were friends. Yeah. And what do you say? I say. You say we, we are. are. I say we are, and but I'm also, you know, I'm the one of the bases of our friendship is a. You know, I'm a journalist, and b. I'm always going to tell you the truth. And even in that conversation with a given politician, I often, at this point, you know, not where I, at 53 years old and having yeah. known some of these people from 30 years. Yes, now. they like we were talking about our parallel friendships. I know people who like I've watched them go from you know, state from a city councilman to a state rep, to a congressperson, to a senator, to a presidential candidate, sure. right? You know, um, uh, so we, it's been, there've been, we've been on our parallel journeys for a long time, but the real, the, the bottom line is throughout at this phase now, I often will say, you know, you know, you're fucking this up and I'll say it in private. And it's the same thing I'm going to say. I'm like, I'm going to tell you right now, you're fucking this up. This, this is dumb. You're, you're, you're in, you're, the, you here's could, how you're going to get hit for yeah, this. You're gonna get, I'm going to be one of yes, the guys. Yes, yes, correct. Like, you know, this, this was a, this was a dumb thing. And, 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 or I, you know, you see things down the line where you're kind of like, you know, um, I, you know, I, politicians all the time say to me, I'll, I'll give you an example, just here, a straight example, right? Someone just in, in the news, right? Cory Booker. Um, yes. Person I like a great deal. Me too. Um, My limited interactions with them really like them. And I, you know, I was right before, right before Christmas, I was out in Iowa, uh, and I spent like a day uh, with Corey just on the on his bus, and and we had you know conversations on a, on a recorded on a on a on a recorder for that were very much on the record. We had a, a lot of conversations that were off the record. We had a lot of conversations where it was not really stipulated, but it, they were just you know chatting about stuff, right? But we had, you know, his we were having mutually having the conversation of like, what's not working here? Why am I not, you know, yes. his question to me, like, you've covered a lot of these, like, why is this not working? You know, and me, why do you think it's not working? And being pretty, like, each of us being pretty brutal, I would say, both him being introspective, trying to figure out why, like, why is it the dogs aren't eating the dog food? There's a lot of, you could make a list of reasons why Cory Booker is an attractive 
potential president of the United for States. For this moment, too. And, yes. a can, and a candidate, they had a theory of the case. He knew why he was running. He ran consistently. He's a well, it was a good candidate for Iowa. There were a whole bunch of things you could say about Cory Booker. And yet, you know, it wasn't never happened. Never got really up above two or three percent anywhere, right? And I would have predicted earlier. I, I might, if I don't really try to do predictions, but I thought, you know, Corey, you could imagine him being really competitive as an Iowa candidate. You know, there's a lot of Obama-ish qualities yes. here. They had embraced a candidate kind of much like him. He was running a very much a unity, unity, hope kind of driven campaign at a time when the country is really divided. And there are a lot of people we know, not just anecdotally, but in the data, a lot of people who want to try to find a way somehow in this incredibly partisan, polarized, negative environment to find their way back to unity and common purpose. Yeah. And that is who Corey is. So he was running a campaign that was true to himself, that seemed, you could imagine, that was true to, that would there would be an opening for that in this world. And yet, and he performed well. There were no scandals. He was really good in all the debates. And yet, somehow, it never clicked, right? So I, I we were able to have a conversation that was very much, you know, where I was kind of like, I have an analysis for why that doesn't why you that doesn't work, with it. and I'm willing to hit him. And you know, and I think part of the way in which if your if your relationship with a person like that is a relationship that's going to stand the test of time over the course of long careers, right? Part of what it's built on is that you are able to be honest with them in private and honest about and them. And then in when public. you report that, you're scrupulous about which things you're supposed to talk about. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yes, you got to keep the lines clear between on the record and off the record. But I'll say with Corey, like they're not really that different. You know, like there, there, there's not, there's not some secret there. It's like there are, are, if you played our on the record conversations and off the record conversations next to each other, they would not only be consistent in spirit and theme, but there was almost nothing in those conversations that they, you might as well take the, I would, I'm not saying I would remove the label of off the record and use those things, but I'm saying that apart from like things where names where you might name names. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, candidates rightly they think all day long about the mechanics of the race. They thinking all the time about like about tactics and strategy and they don't want to have that discussion because they want to be talking about what they're going to do for the country, their vision. They, and they, they, they rightly, they, it's not like you're, you, you must be realistic enough to know that that is what they think about all day long. Yes. They want to talk about it too. Cause they talk about it with their staff all day long with me, who has covered eight presidential cycles. They want to talk about it too. So, but they don't want to see that. They, they, they want for what's published, at least in, in the, in the, in the immediate term, they want to be focused on things that the public cares right, about. Later for a book, you can go right. back and say, can we talk about this stuff? Cor- correct. And so, and so I guess my point though, is that to try to put a pin in all of this is just to say, I think that I have had the relationships that work over time are the ones where they know that it's part of your job to, um, go on when if you're now or like a reporter and an analyst and a commentator and all the things that I do, yes. that they are going to occasionally get kicked in the shins by me on television. And they're like, if, if they're not the kind of person who understands that that kind of honesty is at the core of, of everything that I'm going to tell them when they're doing a great job, I'm going to tell them when they're doing a crappy job. If they don't understand that that's the core of the relationship, we're not really going to have a relationship, right? Because right. then it's just going to be through people yes. and you're going to talk to their flax. And, and, and I have, and I have had politicians who, you know, couldn't see that, you know, that, that part of my, that ultimately as important as 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 positive, constructive, and useful in both respects in terms of understanding the world, uh-huh. understanding them, that our relationship is to both of us. That ultimately they are not my constituency. They are not who I am there to serve. I am not there to serve you. I'm happy to like you ask me a question. I'll tell you honestly what I think you're doing well and what I think you're doing crappy. I'll say probably pretty much the same thing on television. But in the end, like I got to be honest with the people yes. who are the consumers of 
my analysis and my reporting. I got to be honest with the public. And if I start to not be honest with the public, I'm of no use to anybody, right? Right. Even to them, by the way, the Correct. politicians. Yes, so exactly. Right. All right. I'm switching gears, John. Okay. Yeah. Because this is the moment. So we have to, we have to do this. We don't have to name names, but dude, your life got turned upside down a couple of years ago. Yeah. And you're, I just want to hear about how you process the emotions. I don't want to talk about Mark, uh, who was your partner, or any of the specifics. But I am, uh, what I think a lot of people who listen to my show run into these moments in their lives when things seem imperiled. Uh, their company has layoffs, or uh, they get betrayed by someone that they work next to, like all these things. And you live this out in public. And I just want to understand how you figured out how to survive emotionally and how you thought through putting yourself back into the position you're in, which is the foremost political, you know, writer commentator, um, that we have. And, and I, I, I have to think that, um, I have to think that you had a lot of uncertainty. So how did you manage it? I think there's a, I'm trying to process like exactly how to, there's a lot of things going on in that. Yeah, in, John, in that John you, you, had a, you had a partner. Uh, you guys wrote books yeah. together. Your partner got in trouble because actions he took. I, I hate when people say someone was me too yeah. He wasn't me too What happened was actions he took came to the surface. Those actions uh, made it Im- impossible for him to continue doing that work. A lot of the stuff you did, you guys were branded together even though you were two separate people. Right. And so some of that, even though there were never any accusations against you, and in fact, your reputation is perfect, some of that splashed on you and on your life. Uh, work that you guys were gonna do had to get discontinued. Your show had to be re- reformulated. You had to figure out how to, how, to, how to work as a solo artist. Yes, right, so all that's true. I think the, the starting place is um, that in, in the, there's a kind of, the, the, these things kind of proceed in phases, right? Yes. And at the moment when all that happened, there were a lot of people getting caught up. In the, that fall of 2017, you know, famously, the Harvey Weinstein thing had just happened. And subsequent to that, people like Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer, there was a lot, that, that was a very, a period where a lot of people, um, got, you know, who had issue, had issues of this kind. And those issues came to the surface, came to the surface and and people, you know, lost careers and, 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 you know, without passing judgment, we have to go through each one to think about what the, 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 the level of, um, of justification was. I think some people, you know, some people were worse transgressors than others. Let's put it that way. And not that any of this transgression can be excused, but there were people who were really bad, you know, Harvey Weinstein at one extreme and then others who were less. I think in that period, you know, there was certainly a, um, the first thing was, you know, you had the point that you made a second ago. A lot of the work that Mark and I were doing together was work together. We were in the middle of working on a book that, about the 2016 presidential campaign. I mean, you there guys have written two big bestsellers together. Right. And there was going to be, uh, the, that book was going to get done. And then in theory, it was going to get made into a, a miniseries. And there was the circus, which we had also been together. Yeah. So, you know, just as a matter of reportage, right, those things all unraveled very quickly from, uh, from, from both of our points of view, you know, the, 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 the speed with which, um, the, and I, we, I could really talk all day about this, but I mean, the book, the miniseries, it evaporated 
in you know 48 hours after the so the, i want to just take a second to say I, I want people to understand so you know you were a journalist you were a very successful journalist uh you 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 lived a life like very few people get to live but then your career took off in a way nobody's done you and you're yeah. you're i'm saying you got put in a place where but by through your work uh and we'll talk a little bit about i, I you know your writing which i do think you're the best at what you i do think you're the very best uh stylist in in what you do um and i wish you did more writing but um uh you were you know you were earning a lot of money and you were you know speaking again you were put in a position where you could think okay, I know what the next 20 years are going to play out like. And then suddenly, these deals got canceled on right. you. This thing of like suddenly, I never felt like it was all guaranteed and secured forever. The thing you said a second ago, I could have, you know, I, things had gone very right. You know, Game Change had been an, an, extraordinarily, an extraordinary success, an extraordinary boon. It's, and when anything like that happens to you, it is some combination of, the, that you're proud of the work and you think the work is good, but also it's a lightning strike. There are yes. many, many really good books written that don't take off in the way that book did. And there were a series of things that happened that yes. made that book so successful. But I never felt like I have a guaranteed path. You didn't feel like you had a sinecure, but what, the way those speaking deals, the way speaking works, as you know, yeah. is, is you can sort of see what a tale is going to be and you know you have a few years. There, there, there's, there's no doubt about it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like... The, I, I, I think it was helpful for me to be uh, someone who had always had this kind of neurotic, insecure sense that like at some point, like it, it could just fall poof apart. and all fall apart. Because then when it did all fall apart very quickly, it was not like, oh my God, I've never imagined anything like this. I was like, actually, that's my constant fear is that everything is just going to suddenly This is how I view what you're saying. Well, you're a Hunter S. Thompson guy. So right. like, in a way, you've always viewed this whole thing as rigged in some way it can yes. all yes it's and, and, conti and contingent and 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 tenuous right yes. so the answer to the question is you know you get out of the car and you know the the book is gone and the hbo the miniseries based on the book is gone and then it's like you're you get out of the car and you're like okay i you know i i'm okay i'm like my wife is i'm an amazing woman and she I, is and i you know we kind of like took a little a moment to be like, to look and make sure there's, okay, I'm, I'm not bleeding and nothing's broken here, you know, metaphorically. And then it was like, okay, so what, what's, what's actually gone away and what hasn't gone away just yeah. in terms of the pure, the, 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 the life, yeah, the, the, work, the, the work, the profession, the, your the, career process, the career, right. And I, and I'll say going back to my, my gimlet eyed, cold eyed, you know, labor and, and, and management thing. A couple things were true at the very beginning, which was the like that David Nevins at Showtime and my bosses at MSNBC were from the very beginning like you're good, like you're, we're not you know we don't know what the future of the circus is, but we're not canceling the circus, you know we're let's we'll figure that out, but you, we're in a good place you and like we want to be with you, we're with you, you know. Yes. And MSNBC was the same way. It was like the NBC people were just like you know we are not. You're gonna. You're fine with us. You're okay. And a surprising number. I mean, not surprising. You take stock pretty quickly. The first thing is, is my body intact? The second thing is, in that in the in the pile of rubble over here, like how much of that rubble that was shared, you know, these shared enterprises that had uh -huh. now that no longer existed anymore. Okay, so what what what's still there? You know, and these things were still there. Yeah, and what are the things that? What are the things that you know? I had been before we started, before Mark and I started working on Game Change. I had been, you know, a pretty successful person. So the, the first things I think were spending time trying to figure out 
you know, what was gone and what was uh, some way tenuous and what was solid, you know, and then trying to make that pivot of, um, you know, what, you know, the band, you, you, at some point the band breaks up, right? That's like a, you know, a, there's a lot of bands you and I both that have loved where you realize that the, that you're in that band, but you don't necessarily think you're going to be the Rolling Stones. You're going to be together until you're in your eighties, right? At some point, someone's going to go solo, right? This was kind of like a thing. I always imagined that at some point that I would return to solo, be a solo artist again. I didn't imagine that this partnership was going to last for the you rest did. of my career. Right. I did not. So in some sense, once you got past the, the shock of it and that these very large things, and, and I'll say not just, it's not just about economics. I mean, we had, had spent you know, weeks, months of 2017 reporting what I thought was going to be a book that was better then game change. The game change. Well, that where we had news yes. and 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 great reporting, and literally when the thing happened, I had just I just started to sit down to write. There was a lot. Part of the consideration was not just where's my where's my career. Part of the consideration was like what's going to happen to this material. Like there's stuff in this book that like is in the public interest that should that should I want to get this written, you know? And taking stock of you know again what what had gone away, and then what was unaffected and then all the stuff in the gray area which was you know even the circus at that point you know where it was sort of like what will that be you know and again showtime was always from the beginning was like we would like to continue with this show but in that immediate moment and we're not backing away from you at all but let's let the smoke clear a little bit and see and then figure out how we want to proceed and so that was like a little bit of like, I think the circus I think is going to go on. You know, the show's yeah. been successful. David, we all believe that there was a way to make the show was not about any one of us. But yeah. it did take a little time. That was something we had said for a long time, but had never really been tested. And so it took a few weeks, a few months yes. to figure out what the new version of that looked like. You know, Alex Wagner, who is now on the show, was actually going to join the show even before the thing happened with Mark. So it was like, you know... We had, Alex was coming on anyway. Right. So we, it was, it relatively quickly, we got a sense of, okay, this will work. And, and this were you mentally okay during it? Meaning, were you sleep, like, were you, because a lot of us obsess, you know, and I'll tell you, as your friend, you know, it was funny, you and I had a conversation three months later where you called me and you were like, um, hey, we got to get together. You haven't really checked in enough. And I'll, I'll tell you, I remember thinking... I want to give, and it was a great learning lesson for me because I remember thinking I wanted to give you space and also I felt the world was besieging you. Yeah. I couldn't imagine what it was like being in your, in your head. And also I remember thinking in my naivete at that time, uh, there's no way that what happened is going to affect John. Like I thought you were, and then when we got together and I understood the enormity of it, yeah. I was like, uh, I couldn't believe the strength you had to have to get through it. Well, I, you know, I don't want to, um, uh, I, I think that, um, there, are, I'll say the, the thing that is true, right. You know, having been through some pretty heavy health related things in my family in the last year, I now think about like, and, and people go through this shit all the time. You know, um, what I, what I had to quote go through is like minor compared to what a lot of people have to struggle with every day and sure, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, of course. So, and I actually think keeping that perspective is super important when you're but going hard through it. when you're going through stuff. Well, yes, it's hard, but it's, but it's part of the challenge. And I think to go back to your original point. So there's a bunch of different threads here, right? One thing is, you know, taking stock, realizing that you have gotten out of the car, you are intact, 
seeing like what parts of the, the this car that have been totaled. And one of the things over time was understanding that like for a variety of reasons around the commercial prospects and the the book was that you had to like there were certain things that I thought you could fix parts of the had to let go of the car that that couldn't be fixed and that you just had to write them off, right? But understanding what was intact, what was tenuous and could would, would with some repairs could get fixed and understanding what was just done. That's a process you go through in your mind. Um, I think, you know, with, with you, you know, there were a lot of, it's amazing the, 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 the number of people who are incredibly yes. supportive. I mean, my friends, far flung, close friends, distant friends, you know, when you're, when you are the, a, a, a bystander to this kind of a thing and yes. you're this intimately connected to it, but not, but it's not really you, but it was a high profile thing, right? So the amount of incoming, Yes. From people like who don't have anything like the relationship you and I have. Yes. Who are reaching out, you know, it's, it's, it's overwhelming, but also, you know, it's, you know, it's part of the process of realizing you're oh, going to yeah. be okay, which is that like, there are all these, because it makes you, it gives you a greater sense of the things that in that category of things that are going to be fine. Like, and one of the things was, you know, relationships and friendships and, and people both in the business professional and personal who were, you know, yeah. saying over and well, over to, you know, well, that's why I love when you fine, reached out fine. to me because one of the great things about a real relationship is you can tell people what you need Yeah, in your real relationship. Yeah. And I really, um, I remember us having, you know, you called me and we had breakfast and, uh, feeling like I was trying to give you space, but sometimes in a relationship, that's not, you know, yeah. check in and then figure it out. It's a good, it was a good learning lesson for me. Because yeah. I, I pictured you being besieged by all these people. Yeah. And I figured when he's ready, he'll want to talk and, and reach out. But it was a good, for me anyway, it was a great reminder that you should always lob in and let the person decide yes. if they want to yes. interact or not. Yeah. So, you know, it was a, look, it was a, I'll say as, the, as a kind of over, the overarching thing of it, I would say it took a year really to be like mm. through it, you know? And uh, again, you know, compared to a lot of things that people go through, this is not that big a deal, but I think a year it, until you just slept like until it was like, yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I have my feet under me. Yeah. You were asking the question. I mean, look, there's just a lot of that level of, of that level of things that you're, we, we, the, the number of projects that we were, that, that we were jointly involved in, the number of things that went away, oh the number of things that either had to, that were, that had to be reconfigured or salvaged or whatever. It was like, look, it was just a lot, you know, it was a lot to, to get through. And it, and then there was this thing of like, even if you said to yourself, well, I knew I was going to be a solo artist at some point. This is just, if you, if you tried to be really neutral about it and say, well, you knew you were going to be a solo artist at some point, this is now happening a little bit quicker than you thought it was going to happen. And it's not, it's been triggered by something that's outside your control. And you could kind of think about it that way and try to kind of, uh, uh, soothe yourself in some way and sort of say that, that, you know, it's all fine. It's all fine. The reality is that, you know, that amount of, uh, that amount of change and all of it, I think, like we are super controlling people, right? Yeah. So like, this is a thing that I said to people a lot of the time and you and I may have discussed this before. Like I, you know, would much rather have you be angry at me than feeling sorry for me. This yes. is one of the hardest things for me. And it goes to this thing of like people lobbing in. I mean, you, I had a particular, like, I was like, I wanted to hear from you because I actually thought that, you, that I, I missed you. And, and I was a little mad at you, actually, as you remember. But, but the truth was, all of the, the incoming of people trying to be supportive, it was not like, 
it was not just that it was overwhelming. It's like the last thing in the world I ever want to yes. be is be pitied. Well, this is right. Part, I mean, I will say it's you like, were right to be mad at me because your friends should fight through that shit. Right. But that was all in my calculation. Right. 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 All in my calculation is if I get a bad. Re- so there are people when you get a terrible review. Yeah. There are the people who call you first. Yeah. I hate those fucking people. Yeah. Don't call me the moment I have a bad review. Right? Yeah. I, I know the bad reviews out there. Yeah. If I get a bad review or a movie came out and bombed or I got fired and it was written about, you do, I'm, I'm happy to get someone to call with something useful like, here's an opportunity or here, come speak here. Like, like something that changes the direction. Yeah. The pure sympathy phone call from some people, right. for me, everybody's right. different. Right. I don't need it. I'd rather like, let's, so I was doing that sort of like calculation, but the truth is you got to, as a, as a friend, what I felt bad, feel bad about was as a friend, I should have just found a way to communicate to you. I'm here. If you want to talk. Yeah. Not to, because I pictured everyone pumping you for, I'll tell you, I can say it. Like I pictured everyone pumping you for information. Yeah. I pictured everybody being like, what really happened? What did he do? You know? And I was like, I don't want to be one of those fucking voices. Yeah. And then two months go by and then you realize, oh fuck, I haven't called John in yeah. two months. Yeah. Right. Um, sure. And, and that's what sure. happened. Yeah. So I think there's that, you know, I just, that's the, the, it's an important thing for me again. Like I, I'd rather, you know. Being, having agency and being, like, I make mistakes all the time. I do dumb shit. I make a mistake. You get mad. You know, also, and then, and then if I fuck it up, I then I'm like, how do I fix this? You know, like, what do I do to fix it? How do I, how do I make up to that person that I somehow let them down? How do I, if I piss somebody off, is there some way we can get to a place of reconciliation? But it's all like within your control. It's the hardest thing about being in the passenger seat of the car that gets totaled or or someone on the street corner is that... You're like, I didn't, uh, there's things I need to be doing here, but like, I can't, this is not within my control to remedy it, right? So being a, being a, a, a bystander in a situation like that is super hard in the same way, like I said, I'd rather have people be mad at me than pity me. Pity, like people yeah, feeling course. sorry for you is like, I don't know, whatever it is in my personality, the last thing I, I want. Don't, that's what I'm saying. I don't want that either. Is expressions well, uh, of, is expressions uh, did, of, of, of uh, like just that. Yes. Floating a sympathy. poor guy. Oh, right. poor John. Yes. Ha, uh, did this give you any, and then I have a bunch of questions I got to get to, but yes. did this give you any greater empathy for people who are scandal adjacent in your professional job? Meaning normally someone would look at someone and be like, there's no way he didn't, but like, I know the stuff you didn't know. Yes. I, I would like to be, I would like to think that I'm, that I was mindful of this even before all this happened. But I think that definitely going through a thing like this makes you aware that jumping to conclusions and having assumptions about things is in these situations is just, is a mistake. You know, um, you know, it, to this day, you know, you, I will, people will say, well, you know, you must've known about X, Y, or Z. And I will say, you know, all of this behavior, all of the things that, that, that cause, uh, you know, the, 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 the explosion and the career implosion, um, of Mark's, yeah. On, on Mark's side, all of them were things that happened when he was at ABC news. Like I hadn't, I didn't really, barely knew the guy, you know? It was a decade before we even started working together. And yet people say, you know, you were, I, I, I say, just, could you just pay attention to the timeline, right, please? Which is, I, no, I'm you aware know, of like, what, I, I, I don't mean you. I mean, I'm also I, aware of the fact that, that, that uh, your social lives were an, entirely different. I, I, yeah. I know all that stuff. So, so I think, I think what it, it makes you, not just, not just, uh, I, I think it makes, 
if you write narrative and if you have written, especially nonfiction narrative, and I'll tell you, it's really funny because if you want to try to like veer this conversation to politics, like right now we're, we're all having this discussion about Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Like what happened? Did he say this thing? Did he not say this thing? Is she lying? Is he lying? Is there something in between? And I, people are screaming at me on social media because I have said for the last three or four days, on the basis of what I currently know, I have no idea what happened in that room. I just don't know. And people are like, it's, Bernie is a liar. He's definitely lying. Here are the reasons on the tells. Here's this. Here's that. Here's the other thing. And the other half of the people are like, Warren, she's a liar. She's obviously can't, you know, fire Elizabeth Warren, cancel Elizabeth Warren, whatever, you know, never Warren, you know. And I'm like, I don't understand. Like, I've written about, I've written a lot of stories, a lot of pieces of, 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 of nonfiction about what happens in closed door meetings. And the, if you do that, you, you bring to it a certain humility because not only are you not there, but... There is this thing that we think of, we call the problem of memory, which is that like two human beings, you and I could tell a story about a thing that happened to us a year ago, where I could tell you this happened and you would say something totally different and we would both We would have be... certain of the particulars, correct? We were at the Ray Donovan party yeah, right. or whatever, yes. and then at breakfast at the core club, but you're right, the, the, there's so many other parts of it that... And, and, and even, you know, the, like, what, the fundamentals of what were said in the room, people just... You know, often it's a thing where something is said and you get the basic gist of it, but you hear it very differently. But my, my, my basic point is that you don't really know. And the people who are recounting their version of it can be completely honest about what they're saying yes. without, and not, they're not lying whatsoever. Now, there, somewhere out there, there is an actual reality. Like if there was, if we had the Panopticon and we actually had, we were shooting that thing from a hidden camera, there would be a reality. But that reality may be unknowable forever because well, the there would people, be a reality. And in this instance... What the reality of whatever that conversation was, you know, that brilliant thing that Tony Gilroy did in the, uh, the, the, the Bourne movie, I guess the third one that he did, where he took that conversation from one of them, I guess first to second. He took that conversation that was mm -hmm. one thing, but then when you had more context, that yes. conversation meant yes. something yes, entirely different. Right. And so like those two people, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, they've had a 40 year relationship. Right. So who knows what the 40 things that were said in the months leading up to this one conversation. Exactly. So my, the, my point about this is to say, I like to think that having done that kind of uh, reporting and journalism for a long time, that I, I walk into this Warren thing and the Sanders thing with a sense of like, uh, of humility about the limits of my ability to sure. know what's going on. And to take it back to the thing that we started with here, which is that like, I like to think that that translates into a thing of, of, of an approach to when I hear about some scandal and the, 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 the spouse of the person who's in the scandal or the partner or whatever, that even before this thing happened in my life, yes. I was, I wanted, I tended to approach those things with like, there's so much I don't know about this and not with a kind of like, well, it with, has to be, there's no way. He must know, you know, he, she, you know, of course they knew, of course this, of course that. I just, I think the right way to think about these things is like, in a relationship, in a circumstance, in a moment, there's just a lot that's going on. You don't know anything. That's and to walk in with like, and have this pounding on the table certainty that on the basis of circumstantial evidence that you know, you know what well, happened. certainty is, is, is just is foolish and, and almost always wrong. Certainty is a very fraught thing in your endeavor in general, yes. right? I mean, Frank Luntz on the night of the election, right up until it turned the other way, was you know, certain that his, the Trump 
couldn't win. So certainty in this whole world of politics is difficult. I, here's what I want to ask you, John, yeah. and then we're going to get to politics. Yeah. Which is, when, whenever people who know about this kind of writing talk, they do talk about the fact that, you know, you're like as good as it gets at writing these long-form pieces. And I know that you love the result of having written these long-form pieces. And I also know that it's far from the, it's, you know, 10th on the, like, most lucrative. So, like, do you miss it? Because you're, you know, you were, you're, you were defined, really, as a writer by, for a long time. You're no longer. I bet a lot of people don't even know you're a writer. Yeah, and sure. So, and, like, you know, I would read those, bef- I would read those New York Magazine columns. They were my favorite thing, you know, because I would try to figure out your influences were and as a, I'm just talking about as a pro stylist yeah and I like I can't no matter what I do for me in my life when I'm back to the page I get such you know the frustration the pain the anger of it all of it but I get such ultimately joy yeah. out of the thing that happens on the page yeah don't do you miss it I found writing always, maybe not always, but mostly, certainly in my adult life, an incredibly painful experience. And you just, you passed over a second ago. You're like, well, there's the pain, there's well, the anger, there's, there's but that. It's also, yeah. Well, yeah. And I think, I think that's the thing is the question is for, does the, for, for most writers, there's a certain amount of pain involved in, in, in writing, but they love having written. There's kind of the cliche of, I hate writing, but I love but having also, written. But also, I love those moments when you're kind of half tethered and you're in the flow. Yes. And your writing has a lot, it's clear you're in the flow at yes. a lot of points. Yes. I think that for me, like, I was a very, a writer who would, you got a, I'm writing a 7,000 word uh, cover story for X magazine and the deadline is Friday yes. and I've spent two months reporting it and now it's a week, it's a week out yes. and it's Sunday and I have to turn the piece in ostensibly on Friday, although there's never been a deadline I've ever hit in my entire career ever once. And like they built whole new systems <laughs> to for how to, accommodate, how to accommodate my New York magazine. They were like, <laughs> they had to figure out a whole new way to publish the magazine to accommodate my insanity and my inability to meet any deadline you put in front of me. Sure. But so it's now it's Sunday, the piece is due on Friday. And I'm trying to write the I'm trying to write the lead. I have the whole thing. It's in my head. It's architected. Like I'm a structure nut. I have to understand exactly what before you where start it writing starts. the prose. Yes, yes, before it starts. I'm not. I never have been like a like I write a shitty draft and then I do more draft draft drafts. I'm always like I would agonize over the structure of it and then I start to write it and then I finish it and. Most of the time, like when I finish the piece, it's like basically going to go in the magazine. But that doesn't mean that like. It's not like I just knocked those out. It's more like it's agony to get there, but I could never, I can't start until I know exactly what the beginning is, the middle is, the end, and all of the structural pieces have to be in my head, and then I can get going. And I say then I can get going, but what that really means is that on Sunday, as I sit down with the thing mapped out it, on, on paper and in my mind, and I've cleared all the structural hurdles, now I'm like trying to write that first paragraph, uh, right? And, yeah. and that I could go Sunday. Monday, Tuesday, it's like now 3 a.m. on Wednesday and nothing's written. Right. And the pieces due at the end of close, close now, of business yeah. on Friday. And I am in not emotional or psychological pain. I'm in physical pain. I am like yes. curled up like a ball. I'm not sleeping. I'm yes. not eating. I'm eating too much. I'm drinking too much. I'm drinking too little. I'm stoned. I'm not so like whatever. Right, I'm trying yeah, anything, anything to get out to of make this. the thing go. And, and Diana, my wife is like, you know, 
you can't go on like this and I'm weeping and I'm screaming and the dogs are like either huddled around my feet or hiding in the bedroom. And it's like, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And then at 4.27 AM on Wednesday morning, something happens. And then I write 7,000 words in about 23 hours. Right. And the whole thing just like comes out. Right. Now, to your question, in the middle of that, when I'm like on fire and like I'm in the thing and it's, it's happening now and the flood is coming out, I am as high as I could right. ever it's be. It's the best feeling you can have. And it's amazing. And I'm, again, I have some experience with being high, but I am high, right? It's great, man. It's just great. But at some point for me, the agony of that Sunday through Wednesday, it was getting, the agony was getting to be greater. And For whatever the, reason, and, the, and the, the flow joy time was getting to be it, probably about the same amount, but like it felt to me like like the part where I was struggling was right. seemed more mm-hmm. like literally more, and the, the my my assessment of whether it was worth it to have that be the way I structured my life sort of changed, right? And part of the reason that it changed was that I started making television. Yes, and in making the television. I discovered something that I did not know previously, which was that television is an incredibly collaborative endeavor, whether it's making a, a scripted series, an unscripted series, a, a cable, a, a television show, an hourly, a show that's on, on daily on MSNBC. It's dozens of people all working together to get the show on the air or to wrap the episode or whatever it is, right? So I knew that, that it was collaborative. What I did not know was that I like that. Like I had never really done that. And the more I started making TV and the more I got involved in not just being on camera, but being part yeah, of producing, a television, of producing show. a television show, the more I realized that like, oh my God, like the thing that I've been doing for the last 20 years, which has been my bread and butter and, and my, my pride and joy, the thing I did, part of what I didn't like about it was that it was hard to write, but part of what I also didn't like about it was lonely. It's a very solitary endeavor. So I love the reporting part of doing these books or these magazine pieces or whatever. Going out in the world, being on the campaign, being in Washington, talking to people, doing the interviews, I love doing that part. But then when it came back to doing the writing, you're all alone. And no one will tell you, in, a, in the book, there is a book business, but it's not a real business. You know, you're basically, you're writing the book. Of course. You're on your own. And as the TV thing became a bigger part of my life, what I realized was that this collaborative nature of it really spoke to me. And, and, and you find it as fulfilling? Yeah. As, in a different way. Right. I'm not ever as high right. in the moment as I am when I would be on fire writing that, that piece. Yeah, I mean, and editing's I was, close, I imagine. There are those moments when you get an in, those moments when you're editing a show and you, and you make that kind of a writing breakthrough. Yeah. Feels a yeah. little bit like it, yeah. I although, although it's Although I'm not sitting at the Avid, right? So right. it's not like I'm, you know, I don't have the kind of autonomy over that. I, we, you can have yes. a breakthrough, but it still has some other guys got to execute it. That's Where true. Where with writing, you are, it's all you. It's in your head and it's on your keyboard and your screen. And so what I, you know, at the moment when the pain of writing was getting greater and... The descent to it, it just it disrupted my life. Like, yes. and I was weighing out the costs and benefits of like, man, there's a lot of pain involved here for obviously also a lot of, of satisfaction and joy, but the pain seemed to be getting greater. And did I really want to keep disrupt? This is just a, it was a, you know, 
And for a long stretch of time, it didn't matter because, like, you, you know, you're reporting a book. You spend months reporting the book, and everything's normal. You're, like, going through your life. You're doing sure. the interviews. You're really busy. You're seeing all these people. And then you, at some point, you get to the point where you're getting ready to do the writing, and you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be – And well, then the yeah. fear of it starts to be an well, issue. Well, I will say – so I, you and I were talking a lot – I don't know if you remember because you were so in it, but we were talking a lot when you were writing the second book, the second book you guys wrote together. Yeah. And your life – was I mean those weeks of that summer when you were writing that yes. book and you're just locked in the you house. were just like dude I'm 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 in, I mean I remember I would check you would just be like no this is I'm in hell I'm, yes I'm here I'm, I'm locked I'm, I'm locked in hell for for this period yeah of I time. can see you on a Friday at this time but otherwise right. I'm done so you, so so both of those so that was getting I think my my sense of the of the I mean again cost benefit analysis yeah. my sense of the cost was getting the costs were getting greater and my evaluation of how much cost I was willing to uh, I wanted to just to be a happy person how much of it did I want to keep doing it intersected with the discovery that I could tell stories in a different way on not just again being a cable pundit but like that making the circus in particular but in other and recount too and, now, and, and, right? and other venues but like that that working in this thing working on this team of people in the field or at or at home yes in both the context of building a company i mean recount is not just making television but it's also building a company right yes. so that is an incredibly collaborative enterprise and so what happened with me was you know the the thing collaborative things like when i discovered I just said, you know, I'd worked at magazines. I'd been, it's not like I'd never been on a team of any kind before, but ultimately writing is really solitary. The discovery of that I was, that I enjoyed collaboration, not a little bit, like a lot. lot. And that I was, you know, good at it. Like I had to learn how to be in cloud. Like it, it wasn't like immediately, like all of a sudden I'm like, Hey, you know, if you work in a solitary profession, all of a sudden you're in a collaborative environment. It takes a lot of learning to get to the point where you're quote, I put quote marks on this good at it. But those two things, it's like just the, 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 the lines on the graph kind sure. of crossed. And so do I miss it was, I think, the first question. You know, like, not that much. All right. I miss, sometimes. I miss reading it. Sometimes. I still miss reading now, it. And said, I still now, think having, you'll write a book again. Now, having said that, you know, like, it might be that, like, in this moment about this this political moment, this campaign, this president, this uh, challenger, whoever that turns out to be, the stakes of this, the craziness of this moment, the surrealness of it. Could force you to write another book. You know, maybe. Right. Yeah. It could. I mean, I'm thinking it could. Y- yeah. I mean, and if someone like suggested that like I'd you know, that they had, if someone said that they had seen me in Iowa and it looked weirdly like I was like sitting in a hotel lobby and it looked like I was actually like might be writing, reporting or writing, that might be true. Might be. All right. That's exciting. That's exciting. It might be. It might be. We're not announcing anything. We're just saying it's exciting. It might be true. And you know, I got to say there's the, the, this, there's, there's a thing that writing can do. And you know, this is true. Television is really powerful. And I, and, and I'm, we're going to make 24 episodes of the circus this year. Um, we're gonna premieres, be on the, premieres the, on the 26th of January, Sunday, January 26th at 8 p.m. on Showtime. We're coming back on the air. We're going to be on the air for, for you know, Through a, long, the a long stretch of weeks in the nomination fight. We're going to be on the air around the conventions. We're going to be on the air through the general election. People who say, I want more circus in my life. You know, back in 2016, we made, I think, 24, 25 episodes, about half the year. 
um, unlike our off-year cycles, which have been usually a spring run and a fall run, right? And people have been like, "Oh my God, it's too little," you know, and they don't realize how hard the show is to make. But people like, "Oh, I, want, I love hearing it; it's great." But people are like, "I want more circus, I want more circus." Yeah. Last year we made eight in the spring, winter, and we made eight in the fall. We're making a lot more this year. So anybody who likes the circus, you're going to get a lot more circus this year. Um, and I, I think that I'm really excited about it because of the fact that this election feels like not like any election I've ever covered before. I mean, it's Trump, right? I mean, the fact of Trump, the stakes, the sense that people understand the stakes. We're right now starting this thing right now on the brink where the president's, you know, the impeachment trial is starting. The president's under the shadow of Trump's impeachment with the country, because of what happened with Iran in the last couple of weeks, kind of feeling more like we have been edging up to the brink of war in a way that we haven't. Like, man, like all of this election was going to be a big deal, even without those things, with those things. It is just stratospherically. Certainly the most, I mean, people say it is cliche, but it is the most important election of my lifetime. No doubt about it. Stakes. So all of that happening, I'm really psyched about making the circus to cover this election because this election is so great. But I will also say that like a great book, this election kind of requires someone to write a great book about it. Well, you're the person to do that. The ele- I just think that there's someone that should do that. Uh, Heilman's not quite telling us he's doing it, but he's getting really close to saying that he's doing it. I just it. think someone should do it. That's Who what do you I'm think saying. that person should be, I Sean? Know, if I could get Hunter Thompson to come back from the grave and, uh. and, and, give, and bring him back in 1972 form... And well, who do you think the closest person to that is? I don't. Right now? I don't. There's. I don't really. Is see he anyone. sitting across from me? I don't see anyone out there, but I do. I do think someone should write a really great well, book. About I, this. I think so too, and I think that person is you. I had a lot more, but we're basically out of time. I just want to see if there's a speed round here. If I want to just, we spend too much time fucking around with all that stuff at the top. You know. I know. Uh, it's true. You're not like a really disciplined host. Thanks. Um, I was just because when it's a friend. I, I let my friend just ramble a little in the beginning, but actually I think that was kind of fascinating too. If you were named the editor of the New York Times, what would you do? How would you change the New York Times? Oh, man. Right? I mean, it's not a job I would want. And I, and I you know, I think that I could have answered this question a lot more easily some years ago. I have just enormous respect for the New York Times and, and they make, you know, every institution of this kind makes some mistakes here and there. But, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago what I would do, I would have said, or 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I would have, the same answer would have been true in all of those cases. And I thought it was profoundly important, which was to stop thinking about the New York Times as a newspaper and to start understanding that it is a, that is a, a, a thing that has a, um, it's an, that it's, it was an entity that was going to have to live and breathe on all of these other kinds of form factors and that the transition to digital, which... The Times has actually now done pretty well. At different times in the past, I had a lot of ideas about like what you would do. But the more relevant thing in my mind was always if you were... Ma- if you were but what about the that- way they cover the way they cover the news and editorialize about the news? What about it? Would you change it or do you think they're doing it as well as one can, considering that they're the most important one of these organs that's ever been, really? I... Honestly, I gotta say, people will find this disappointing. I mean, are there? I, I just want your real answer. No, no, no. I mean, people find it disappointing in the sense that I don't have like. I think the Times is. I am not the person who would be a good editor of the New York Times. Let's put it this way: like, it's there's too much management involved in that, and it's not like a thing that I ever really. I don't really think about it, right? This is why I don't have a good ready answer because it's not a job I would want, and so therefore it's not something I really fantasize right. about. Are there like, and and are there? Certain stories that I would cover differently than the way they've covered them, sure. Are there reporters that I would think about like, you know, hey, that's a person who's never covered politics. Maybe they should. Like, there's all these micro things. But some on some large scale, like, I yes. would do X where they're doing Y. You don't feel I that way. I think, by and large, the New York Times and the Washington Post are 
are have been for the last three years absolutely like at the top of their games like that when the histories are written about uh modern journalism you know the glory days of those papers in the 19 early 1970s when they rose to the challenge of nixon that this will be another one of those periods where people look back and say obviously not the people who think they're fake news but but people who are tethered to reality yes will look back and say that they rose to this challenge not perfectly but heroically and did incredibly important work and did it with as well as anyone could reasonably expect anyone to do it, to do it. You know, it's like, I don't like, you know, it's not right now to me, like, uh, you know, we look back at the period when they, when they fucked up the Iraq war Yes, and you say they made a fundamental mistake in covering an incredibly important story. You don't the, feel like the that's stakes were right. high and they, and they, and they screwed the pooch, right? I don't think they've screwed the pooch on Trump. You know, it's not like I think I think they have done incredible work day by day, broken incredibly important stories, been uh, fierce and aggressive and smart about how they've covered the most important story uh, of this time. Well, that's what I wish for you, John Heilman, which is that you find a way to cover the events of the next year, if not perfectly, then heroically. You know, they, you know, that's a really nice thing to say. You know, we were supposed to, like, I, like, I, I, you know, we walked in here. I'm like, I'm like, how much have I actually said about, you know, any of the things I'm supposed to be here to promote? Probably not enough, right? What do you want to promote? Go. Well, people should, people should go and check out. I just, I could spend all day talking about the, the recount, which is an important new thing. Like this, this product that we're making, this, this company that I've started, like the world of how do you get through the information overload of our current political environment and be smart in a efficient way on video about politics. That was like a big challenge. We started this company, www.therecount.com, where there's an app on, the, on both Android and, and Apple. You should go check it out because I think that that is a new thing in our world that we're trying to, um, we're trying to address a really big thing that's happened, which is as big, I think, as the change from broadcast to cable, from scarcity to abundance. We're now basically seeing the entire television world unravel. And the notion of the phone as the platform for consumption of video and the disaggregation, the end of linear television, right? you know, is a huge thing that's happening. And we are trying to take that as a, as a, for granted, like that, that's actually happening yeah. and it has huge implications. And we're trying to like say, here's how we want to do political so coverage. So check out the recap. You're, yeah. you're not that disciplined a guest because you should have gotten this in early. I and know. Then, well, you got then, me off on some other fucking thing. And then, um, I, because, because what was important for people is to hear about your, that people like you have emotional terrain that, that you're dealing with while you're covering this shit. And then people need to watch the circus, which I think we did cover a lot. And the circus is the only show of its kind and if you go back and actually watch the ones from 2016, um, you did get a look at people in a way that nobody else was able to. Do you wish, and I'll leave it here, do you, like if someone watched closely, they understood where you, where you were on Trump. And if someone watches you on Morning Joe, they understand it. Is there anything you'd do differently on that? Others, do, do you wish that in any way that you were more clear about the risk you saw? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, you can go back to, um, I think, two things, and I'll not take yes. a lot of time on them, but, like, you could go back to 2016 and, you know, find many occasions in which I, on television, said Donald Trump's a racist. Yeah, yeah. No, and, I, and I, it, I, yes. no, 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 I'm not being defensive. I'm just yes. trying to, I'm, I'm going to get to the self-criticism. I'm saying, like, I feel like, you know, on, you know, racist, xenophobic, uh, you know, uh, protectionist, isolationist, like, that he was, you know, staging a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, like, and that 
that was something fundamental was happening with that that was going to transform the party in a way that was going to be deleterious to what it had always been before. Like I got a lot of things I can point to where I was like like out front saying stuff that was on that was right and and where I you know at the same time you know I was very clear eyed about the notion that Trump could win the Republican nomination, but I was as 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 far off as anybody about my certainty. That he would that that the demographics wouldn't line up and that it was going to be impossible for him to win yes. general election. I you know so I I think I um, I understand why I missed on that. Like I understand it doesn't make it better. But you know I you know I, I did not think that there was a that there was a way in which Hillary Clinton could perform as poorly as she did in terms of getting out that. Which part. is why you didn't feel you had to scream fire over and over again. Co- correct. I mean I, you know because you I mean, didn't think it really was a fire. I I, th- I thought that you know a a that that there was no way that Hillary. I mean I don't mean that might have. We I we failed. A lot of us failed in terms of our analytical lens, in terms of being able to understand that that Trump had a clear path to the to the to win the presidency. Now he won the presidency by winning seventy seven thousand extra votes in three states that had not gone Republican in two cases at least in a very long time. So it's a little bit of he flipped a coin and it landed on its side. You know, it was he drew the inside straight. We all missed on understanding that people do sometimes draw inside straights, and you got to be aware of the fact that you can draw an inside straight. Yes. So we failed analytically in in that sense. We failed. I failed analytically in that sense. Um, I, I will say that I, you know, didn't imagine that it was possible that that a modern Democratic candidate who had very smart people around her would like forget to go to Wisconsin. Of you course. Know? Not something but I the ever imagined of, could occur. So making that analytic error allowed, it's one of these compounding things, allowed yes. your foot to come off the gas of going, oh, people, this is insane. You can't let this happen. A hundred percent. And right. so I think to the, my first point, again, just to be really clear out about me, right? I can point to the instances where I screamed, you know, after he you know, attack Judge Curio. Yes. That it was obvious that, that Donald Trump was oh, a racist. Yeah. Donald Trump was a racist, right? But it is definitely the case that because we, because I, had the assumption that the changing American, the face of America's changing demography, c- connected to a well-run campaign on the Democratic side, would mean that he had almost no chance to win. It meant that I was not saying that every day. Right. You know, he is a racist and he's a menace and he, you know, could imperil basic democratic structure, stuff that you, that, that I did say, but I just didn't say it enough. Well, there was a chance that someone could have had a Murrow moment, but no one knew it was, or not enough people in your kind of position knew that it was necessary. Yes, it is. It is the reality that even people who were clear eyed about the fact that Trump was the particular kinds of dangers and threats that, posed, that Trump posed, even people who were clear-eyed about that, did not, you know, I don't know about Murrow moments, but did not say it as much as we could have or should have to just clarify the stakes involved. And I, again, that's a collective failure. It is, I, I take my share of it. But we all, I think, people who were clear-eyed about the ways in which Trump would be transgressive and the ways in which Trump well could be dangerous, said. you know, we all collectively didn't, do, didn't say it enough yes. because we thought either we thought it was obvious, some combination we thought it was obvious or we thought that it wasn't necessary to be said because the outcome, you know, seemed pretty clear. And, I, and I'll tell you that for me, you know, I made a little passing comment earlier in this podcast where I said something about how I like, don't like to make predictions. I'm like, I'm out of that business. Like, I'm, I, 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 people ask me, what did you learn from 2016? I learned a lot of things and hopefully I learned, first of all, we all make mistakes and second of all, I made some some that were pretty fundamental in that context, and I really made a point of saying I'm going to learn from this. And some of the things 
I wanted to learn from were like, don't, you know, make assumptions about how particular candidates will, you can't expect them to necessarily be as good as you think they will be. And that demography is not destiny. Um, eventually it is in the long run, but in the long run, we're all dead. All of that. But the other thing was, man, just like, there is just no, no upside in making predictions about shit. Like, and you know, I, I, you I'm have to now, discipline yourself my, not to. My, my attitude yeah. now, I mean, because everybody asks. What's going to happen? It's the thing that everybody wants to know. And the truth is, we don't What's know. What's going to happen? Nobody knows. Who's going to be the Democratic well, nominee? Well, now to protect themselves, What's a lot happen? of pundits are just going, well, you know, it's, he's probably just getting reelected. But the I truth read. is, what I've learned is, no, the truth is, there are no experts. Nobody knows. We, we talked a lot about Nate Silver on the last podcast. I'll say he still, at 33%, was the only person who even gave it a 33% chance uh, in 2016. But, and even that, you know, 33% just more than most people gave it. Right. And I will say, I just like, I really am, you know, so I've, I've now people ask all the time, even more, given how, how interested people are in politics now, yes. the question of what's going to happen, is Trump going to get reelected? Who's going to be the Democratic nominee? I get those questions more than ever, more urgent and more urgently than ever before. And people get really frustrated because I'm like, I'm not doing this to try to cover my ass. I'm trying to tell you that I actually I don't know <laughs> that I actually don't know. And that actually there's me right. telling you, giving you a prediction is going to give you either false hope or false fear. I, I just like, you know, I could talk to you about some dynamics. I can tell you how I think what is going to be in play, what some of the factors are going to be, yes. what, like what you should be looking out for in terms of like trying to figure out how it's going, you know, what's important, what's not important. What's like, I talk about all that stuff all day long, but what I'm not going to do is tell you, you know, Elizabeth Warren is going to be the Democratic nominee. I don't know. I don't know. And I think it's, you know, if you're going to really have learned a lesson was, you know, from that last election was that there just is not only that you don't know, but that there's just no upside in, in making predictions like, you know, let, you know, let it play out. And, it's, it's on, and, and, and you, you want to have be analytical. I, at least I do. I want to be analytical. And I, and again, I'll talk about the future. I mean, I can, I can spin out scenarios. Well, course. if this happened, that happened, this stuff, like those are all valid ways of talking about what might occur. But I think, where you got to stop and what Trump proved is where you got to stop is in, you know, you know, David Pluff, who I love, who is incredibly smart, one of the smartest people I've ever met in politics. But he came on our show in 2016 and said repeatedly, 100% chance. He's, he was on this podcast and he said he made. I remember it was very he good. Said, no, he said recently, he said, no, I, I, what a terrible mistake I made. He said, yes. And that's, and I think, and I'm, I say this not to trash David, what I'm saying is like, one of the smartest people I've ever met in politics and someone who won two presidential elections for, for the first African-American president in the history of the country. Like, someone who will be in the political strategist Hall of Fame Absolutely. before the first ballot, you know, and is not just in the Hall of Fame, but is like in the pantheon within the Hall of Fame, right? And he said on our show over and over again, 100% Hillary Clinton was going to win. And I got to say, like, the one thing that I, I, you know, I look at someone like David Pluff, I'm like, I defer in a lot of cases to be like, he knows more about politics than I do. Yes. I know a fair amount. David Pluff knows more about what it takes to get elected president. So when I heard David Pluff in our private and public conversations over the course of a year, he wasn't the only one, but among the handful of people of whose, whose assessments I most trust. And again, I'm not trashing David here. I'm just trying to say, you know, I think David right now would say, you know, he's not making predictions either about what's going to happen So next. cover it bravely and heroically, if and not humbly. perfectly. And humbly. And humbly. John Heilman. You can find John on Twitter. He's great on there. You can watch The Circus. You can find Recount and watch the amazing video packages and news that they uh, put out. And um, John, you're about to go on the road for nine weeks. Uh, have I a good time, g- man. Will you come? 
I, I'll come out sometime. I, I told you earlier that we wanted to get you, like we, I mean me. Like, I think like you should come to New Hampshire like the weekend before the New Hampshire primary. It's not that far from here. Yeah, I was like far. I'll do it. I'll do you it. Know, I, I want you to be able to go, you know, Diana comes out. Usually to Iowa for about three or four days. Yeah, I would love to come to New Hampshire for a couple days. So it's, I'll it's, try to do it. Depending on billions, is the only thing that would make me not do it. It's, I'll do everything I can to come. You would love it. I know. I mean, you would love just. I, I, Especially I, if I'm just rolling with you through that. I'm yes, not, please. And I'm not demeaning it when, I, when I call it political tourism. I think you know everyone I know when I actually get someone who is interested in politics, in, really cares about the country, and I say just come the weekend before the Iowa caucuses, the weekend before the New Hampshire primary, the weekend before the week before the South Carolina primary, when it's still retail. Because after this, I gotta do it. you You're never right. see it after this. After it's just all ads and debates and TV stuff, right? These are the moments where you can go and stand in that room and see that candidate, the future next nominee or potentially next president of the United States. It is just, a, it's an incredibly exhilarating yes, I would really thing. like to be at one of those meals that you and Alex and Mark have where you're chopping it up and talking about it, like sitting at the table with you guys listening well, that in would, that environment would that be would, incredible. That would mean that we'd have to give you a spot on, on the circus and, and, and since, uh, since, you know... Uh, uh, well, no, you can just kick me out when the cameras roll. Oh, okay. That's fine. Yeah. I know, oh, since you're not on Billions, you're saying. Yeah. Oh, is this a long way to get me to invite you to be on Billions? I've been trying to get on fucking Billions. Is that what this whole thing is? No, but it's... This what, whole thing no, is a the cameo? Whole, no, you just turned to Jerry Seinfeld so much. Your hey. Seinfeld, their Seinfeldism of you, just that was... you just John Heilman. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, buddy.